our PRBI live session today. I'm your host, Arunjit Ratan, and today we host our PRBI member, David Ball, on our live session. David is the president of Ball Consulting Group, LLC, from Boston, and will speak to us about crisis management in healthcare PR today. A little bit about him before we get started. He's a seasoned strategic communication expert with over three decades of experience in the field. He specializes in crisis management and healthcare. You can only imagine how busy he must have been in the last six months. As expected, in the last several months, he's helped many brands in the healthcare space quickly plan and implement a crisis management plan, controlling the damage to their reputation and building from there. His expertise includes communication solutions for providers of care that include hospitals, health centers, long-term care facilities, physician networks, pharmacies, medical equipment suppliers, managed care organization, health plans, technology companies, and regulators. He's frequently engaged as a crisis communications expert across all these sectors to handle highly sensitive, complex, and controversial matters, and as an advisor to CEOs around the world on PR, marketing, and public policy-related positioning. We are very lucky to have him here with us today. So join us as he speaks to us about how to handle a crisis in the healthcare space and effectively navigate the many twists and turns along the way. So let's add him on and get started. Hi, David. How are you doing? Well, Taranjit, how are you? Thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's, a, it's an absolute, absolute pleasure to have you here with us. So, uh, you know, before we get started, tell us a little bit more about your journey. You've been in the industry for three decades now. Thank you. Yes. Um, uh, it, it's not a, a conventional path to communications. Um, I actually worked in government for a long time. I, I studied government, political science and public administration. Uh, but I had the opportunity while I was working in government um, to uh, do communications work and to deal with the media and and uh, and try to uh, market the organization that I worked for, which was uh, state Medicaid agency. Um, and once I started doing that, I kind of felt like I like this. I feel comfortable with it. It's it's challenging. Uh, it's interesting. It's dynamic. Um, so I then took that practice and went outside to. Um, you know, other sectors outside of government. I worked in the hospital industry, long-term care industry, and then started this firm about uh, 16 years ago. Wow. So why did you decide to start your own firm instead of, you know, working with other organizations? Well, um, I always say that it was, um, I had just passed a milestone birthday uh, and um, I was working, I was the VP for communications at the, the hospital association here in Massachusetts. And I went into my associate's office one day and said, you know, I had a big birthday over the weekend and I want to do something <laughs> dramatically different. So I'm going to hang a shingle and start my own consulting business. And he looked up at me and he said, well, couldn't you just buy a sports car? That would be a more traditional, uh, you know, midlife uh, uh, change. But I'm not, you know, I always... Um, liked what I did. And I thought, gee, if I could do it kind of on my own terms, helping a variety of different clients, um, trying to grow a business that is responsive to the needs, you know, of, of different kinds of organizations, that, that would be a great, a great challenge. So that's what I did. And it was, uh, um, you know, there's, it's scary to, to do that, to leave a job. I, you know, had young children at the time and, um, 
it, you know, it's, it wasn't an easy, uh, it was a leap of faith for sure. But I, I guess it's kind of like uh, going into the ocean, you know, when you first go into the ocean, it's very cold. After a few minutes, you don't recognize that. And, you know, so that anxiety kind of over time goes away. Right. Your right. What was your family's reaction like when you told them that, you know what, <laughs> my job and I'm going to start my own business? I think, you know, um, there was support, um, you know, um, you know, I, I, I think that people had confidence in me, but I think, you know, it was a, it was a variety. You know, as I told family and friends, some people thought that's great. Control your own destiny. You know, other people said, Are you sure you want to do that? You know, it's, there's a lot of, a lot of people fail at that. So I think it depended largely on the person I was telling it right there. Right. So how do you go about selecting clients, uh, you know, for your company? What what kind of clients do you prefer working with? What is your client selection process? Um, well, you know, we have a couple of different disciplines. So we do proactive PR and communications. Um, and uh, for those clients, we tend to focus in the healthcare and human services space, nonprofit, sure. higher education. We kind of do everything, but those are our areas of focus. And then on the crisis side, we work with all kinds of organizations. You know, we do, again, a lot of uh, healthcare and nonprofit, any kind of organizations that have a crisis, you know, we'll generally try to help. Um, so on the proactive side, we want to make sure, the, you know, we feel like we have issues that we can work with, that we have a story to tell, that we have... Um, uh, something that's capable of generating news or right. some you know, a thought leader that that can have a position, you know, a leadership position, you know, that, that people are going to listen to. And so, so those things are important um, because there are times that we tell clients, you know, what it's maybe not, isn't the right time for PR, you know, your product isn't mature enough or um, not enough. We don't think it's going to be interesting. There are times that we have those decisions to make. Um, in the crisis uh, mode, it's more that clients choose us than we choose them because people tend to come to us as much as we try to uh, uh, talk about um, the need to do crisis planning and to be prepared and be ready. Um, a lot of organizations never think about it until the news van is parked in the in the parking lot. <laughs> so uh, in those cases, the clients kind of choose us so um is crisis communication one of your key four things um yeah i'm sorry client communications is one of your key strengths y yes um you know i i think that um well I, in the sense that we um you know uh help our clients to um try to uh um, really figure out kind of what their um what their messaging is, what, what they're trying to communicate. Um, but I think also from the perspective of being in an agency, you have to have open lines of communication with your clients and you have to under, know exactly what's going on in their organization. You, know, you can't be, you can't feel like you're hundred miles away. You have to feel like you're in that decision-making process. Right. I'm sure in the past months, your you know, services must have been really, really, required and must have been really very much in demand. Can you share a few examples of how you helped your clients battle, um, you know, uh, 
with COVID-related cases with when the pandemic struck? Yeah, um, it, it's really been a really a journey <laughs> since since it feels like. In some respects, it feels like March 17th, when everything kind of closed down around here for the pandemic, was yesterday. And on the other hand, it feels like I've lived 10 years in that period of time because um, we um, work with a lot of nursing homes. And uh, during the pandemic, we were representing about 20 nursing homes. Um, and um, um, the 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 um things really went downhill pretty quickly for a lot of those facilities because of the fact that they were dealing with a virus that was invisible um right. that that uh um no one could control um families uh couldn't visit their loved ones and that created tremendous angst and stress um and uh employees were worried about getting the virus um and uh you know for employees who might have small children at home they had to choose between coming into work um right. and getting exposed to the virus um or not doing that so they can tend to their families and that's a decision that no one wants to be in um so um, the thing that really struck me is that the people who work in these buildings um you know are really uh heroes you know they they put the, the needs of the residents and the patients above everything else. Um, and they were incredibly committed. And I think, but as bad as it was here for people living in senior care facilities, had that level of commitment uh, not been there, it would have been 10 times worse. Um, they worked really hard. And so we had, we had one nurse, just to give you an example, we had one nursing home client um, and they um, had uh, a building that was very large and they were planning to um, you know, convert the building so that they could treat people coming out of the hospital with COVID and move patients out of the building and just become a dedicated COVID facility. Uh, just one thing, before, you know, for the benefit of our viewers who are not from the US, uh, could you define a nursing home for them? Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. And I should have thought about that. Um, nursing homes provide subacute care. So, so hospitals provide acute care. If you have uh, an acute medical condition, um, you go to a hospital. If you need to rehabilitate, you know, after having surgery, um, you might go to a nursing home for rehabilitation. Or if you're very, tend to be very elderly and maybe you have dementia or some other really serious conditions you go to a nursing home to live and it's a good point Taranjeet because um, not all uh, cultures not all countries have nursing homes you know in, in many parts of the world when you have an extended family member who needs that kind of care you care for them at home and that's uh, something that I think is distinctly um, you know American that, that these facilities that there's a huge industry of facilities that do this here um, so, so, you know, we had these clients that had these situations where people, um, they felt they thought no one in their building had COVID-19. Everyone was negative. And then they would test and they would see a huge number of people had the virus, but they were either pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic. And you just didn't know until you did the testing. There were just so many unknowns about the virus. Um, mm -hmm. Really... Um, 
made it very, very hard to manage. Um, we had we have a lot of uh, human service agencies um, that um, provide care for people with developmental disabilities. Um, so people who are slow to develop uh, uh, mentally, cognitively, um, and um, yeah, same issue. They couldn't have family visits anymore. They couldn't go to their day programs where they get daily services. And again, you saw this, um, really the people who work in these uh, programs who don't get paid a lot um, because of the nature of how those services are funded. Those people don't make a lot of money. Um, and uh, they stepped up in a truly heroic and amazing way to make sure people were taken care of. So I, I, I feel like it's, it was stressful for us as a PR firm trying to communicate and deal with the news media. But what those people went through, you know, I, I can't even relate to because it was just such an incredible thing. So we're really proud of, the, of our clients and how they handled the situation. Uh, I'm, I'm sure I, I'm getting goosebumps here. So. <laughs> <laughs> I do too. It's so heartening to see somebody, you know, especially uh, the nursing staff out there, uh, the doctors out there, to be able to put the needs of the many against, you know, in front of their own needs. Um, so, you know, when you got into this particular case, I'm sure it must have been a chaotic mess. And, you know, while we love media, they can also be uh, mediums to create or add to the chaos, rather, right? So right. when you step this particular case, how did you help them, you know, turn the tide? What was that? What was your key piece of advice to them? Yeah, the, the number one piece of advice that we had was you have to really uh, uh, communicate with your key stakeholders. So, so um, families uh, of the people that you serve are very, very important. You have to keep open lines of communication with them. Um, have be sure to provide regular updates, you know, so that people know what you're dealing with. Uh, updates on the number of cases um, and be transparent uh, with the data. Um, it all has to be reported anyway to the government. Government tracks all that data, so it's right. going to be public, you know, like it or not. So you you might as well um, be transparent and open and direct about it. Those are really I think the keys, and not to, you know, generally with um, all of our crisis work. The thing that we always try to emphasize is not to have your head, um, you know, in the sand. You know, not not to uh, um, pr pretend that you're not in the middle of a crisis, but rather to be proactive, to deal with it head on. And the organizations that do that, you know, tend to be just fine after a crisis. It's the ones that I think think that, you know, that it's not going to be a problem or there's not going to be an issue that really get surprised. So, so you know, I think the the message from us to our clients was uh, be transparent, be proactive, communicate, over-communicate. Um, and there's really nothing revolutionary about that, as you know, as a practitioner, you know, it's kind of PR one one but sometimes they need someone to come in and, 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 and provide that guidance. That's what we tried to do. So in this particular scene, what was your uh, most difficult moment? You know, it, it was, um, I had to separate um, the work from, you know, um, myself, you know, as much as possible, you know, and I would, we'd hear these, you know, we had some, uh, some clients that were dealing with, um, many deaths, um, and, um, uh, I would, you know, they would go from 
you know, one day having no one with COVID to the next day having you know, 20 people with COVID, you know, go from having no deaths to having 10 deaths, you know, um, because of the, 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 the nature of this virus, which is just horrible. Um, so, um, and our staff, you know, we closed our office um, and everyone was working remotely and that was challenging. So, um, you know, where I normally I would have colleagues and comrades to, you know, um, try to decompress and talk about it. There really was no one, you know, obviously people are accessible and you can talk by phone and Zoom, but it's just not the same. So I found myself, um, you know, in March and April, um, early May, just trying to have to fight off, you know, depression about how how serious this was and the impact it was having on people um and uh um that to me was the the hardest thing was trying to just you know kind of power through it and know i had a job to do and not and try to detach myself as much as possible from it i think that uh, objectivity you know with which you would have to deal with this entire situation must have been crucial for you to succeed um, you know, there is, they say that, um, especially when somebody gets into mental, in the mental wellness space, uh, the doctor or the psychiatrist or the psychologist has to have strong mental resilience. Yeah. It's difficult for them to treat patients. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, did your company also go through a lot of changes during this time? Has your agency changed its way of working? Or did the existing model, you know, adapt itself to uh, the current situation? Um, so um, it was it was a very different model for us uh, operating virtually, um, and um, um, you know, we had, uh, for example, uh, a new member of our team join us like a week before we shut down, you know, and so all that normal time you have to onboard someone and get them, you know, that was gone and we had to do that virtually, which is doable, clearly. I mean, everyone in the world is doing this stuff, but but uh, it was it was diff different. Um, and, um, you know, obviously, always issues of capacity, you know, you have to make sure you can adequately serve your clients. You don't right. want to make sure if you're committing to them that you can give them your full attention. Um, and, you know, in those early days, it just people kept coming, you know, to us saying, I need help with this. I need, you know, uh, we need some guidance and assistance, support. And, you know, you never want to say no to people who are in the middle of that as well. So, um, you, know, uh, you know, we tried to serve everyone that, that had, had a need. Um, we also tried to share kind of what we were seeing early on. We did webinars with different trade associations and professional groups to say, here's really what you need to do as you begin to deal with this. And and the interest and engagement in that really surprised me. You know, we had, um, we did one with a senior care group of providers, elder providers, and we had like 40 or 50 providers and, you know, you know, like a couple of days notice. So people were just really clamoring for, for, for help and information. You know, this is, you know, everyone keeps saying COVID-19 is unprecedented, and it is. I mean, there's no, I mean, nothing in my lifetime has ever been anything like this. And I that's the case for most everyone. We're just living, in, unless someone lived through the, you know, 1918 Spanish flu. I mean, there's just been nothing ever like, like this. Um, it's true. Yeah, it's a new situation for everyone. And I'm hoping that it uh, changes the way we live and make it 
you know, turn towards more mindful living. Uh, but well, let's see how this pans out. But, you know, uh, when there is valid advice or valid counsel being given, whether it's through a webinar or through an article for that matter, I've always seen that when the content is good, people will listen. And I'm sure people would have flocked to the webinars that you did earlier. Um, so has the ask from clients changed in the last six months? Uh, and has your approach towards them and how you approach PR for them changed? Well, I think um, people are, you know, the, the focus is different in that clients aren't um, looking to uh, necessarily make long-term commitments because they just don't know what the future is going to look like. I mean, we could, you know, as you know, we could have a vaccine in January and, you know, and, and you know, potentially, or we could have a not have a vaccine for another year. Um, you know, we could be in ex exactly the same place God forbid, but you know, we could be in exactly the same place uh, next year that we are today uh, at this time. Um, so all of that uncertainty, um, I think, is really weighing on businesses and, and organizations. And, um, you know, even things like a lot of our clients um, provide services that, that are contracted with the government. Um, government has, in the U.S., and I think it's the case probably globally, has put huge resources out there to try to mitigate the impact of this, but there's less revenue. They're collecting less tax. And so um, state governments, um, you know, in particular, um, you know, are, are going, you know, and when our state government here, you know, we're looking at a multi-billion dollar deficit um, and that's going to have to impact everyone. So if you're, if you're a nonprofit and you know, your revenue comes from the state, and you know the state is looking at a multi-billion dollar deficit, well, then you can't really embark on a, a communications program um, you know, that's going to be long-term. So I think that that what people are looking for is very different. Um, you know, we've probably, in terms of the volume of our work, we've generally been um, about uh, two-thirds uh, you know, proactive kind of ongoing communications work and a third crisis work uh, and that's really over the last six months completely flipped probably to two-thirds to three-quarters crisis work so the nature of what yeah. we're doing is different but it must have been very difficult to turn away clients uh, especially ngos nonprofits who yeah. probably wouldn't have had any money but would have wanted you know desperate help uh, from you in crisis communication yeah, we, we we serviced everyone that had a that had a need. Um, you know, there were there was no time during the the height of the pandemic where we said, you know, we're just overloaded. We all worked a lot harder, um, you know, seven days a week in some cases to try to um, help organizations. Um, yeah, the biggest, as you know, the biggest challenge when you do this work is there's no predictability. You know, it's not like uh, an, an accountant that knows, um, you know, I'm going to have um, tax filings due at this time of the year and it's going to be incredibly busy, but then I'm not going to have to work hard for the next three months. You know, you could have a day when it's very quiet and then all of a sudden have two or three different clients, particularly with this, with COVID because of the nature of it, um, where they'd have immediate issues. And so there's really been no predictability, um, you know, in, in how much activity but you know we just kind of it's like anything else you break it down right you you just um you have two things going on you have 
multiple people trying to get facts. You put statements together. And again, the more planning you can do, you know, we, we have some clients that we've actually done crisis plans for. And so we have those crisis plans, template statements that deal with most every situation. So if you can take something, you know, off the digital shelf and put in a few key facts and know that it's good, well, that's going to take a lot less time than trying to figure out something from the ground up. Um, you know, the more that people, and, and I think it's always difficult trying to be an evangelist on crisis planning because people figure we're just trying to sell services, but the re, the proof is in the pudding that the more planning you do, I think the the easier it will be to manage when things go wrong. True. So how's your team dealing with it? Um, you know, it's we try to do um, a lot of uh, engagement to make sure that people are okay. Um, one thing that came out of this was because we were all working virtually, we did a daily uh, Zoom call at 9 a.m. just to check in on everything. And nice. sometimes the calls were brief, sometimes they were longer. Um, but in all the years we've been running this business, we've never done, we've never had like a daily session. We do once a week, we would get together and kind of plan things out every Monday, but we never had like a daily, like, you know, huddle. Um, I don't know why. I mean, we would talk we, when we when things needed to get done. We would communicate too, but but we didn't have like a daily huddle where we just all got together. And, and that's been one of the good things to come out of this is that now we've we're all back in the office, but we've institutionalized that. So every every morning we have a huddle. We still do it by Zoom for social distancing purposes, but but it works. Yeah. Well. I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Everybody's back in office. Every, everybody's back. Yes. Um, um, we, uh, uh, only in the last couple of weeks, um, um, I started back in the office over the summer. Um, and then, um, after our fall holiday, Labor Day in September, we brought, we brought folks back. Um, we're a small, we're a boutique is, you know, evidenced by the fact that we're in PR boutiques international. So it's not like, it's not like a huge operation, but, but, uh, but yes, our folks are back in the office. I can, I yeah. I mean, I mean, it must be so good to finally, you know, be and meet in person, uh, your entire team. Uh, I mean, we just started off uh, for a couple of days in a week, and it's just very heartening to meet people and see them face to face and be able to talk to them. I think the last six months have been very crucial in helping us not take that simple act of meeting each other, you know, take that for granted. It's um, really uh, very important, you know, to see people face to face or at least uh, mask to mask, you know, where we have all in our office, we're all wearing masks. Um, we still don't have the, some of the things we enjoyed doing before the pandemic, like having, you know, bringing lunch or, you know, or we haven't done those, you know, social gatherings, you know, at the end of the day or what have you. Um, but, um, but yes, it's much better to be, to be in person with people um, than it is, you know, over Zoom. Okay. And the same with, I miss really, the thing I really miss uh, in addition to being with staff uh, has been clients. You know, I would spend a good chunk of every week uh, on the road, you know, having uh, lunch with clients or um, uh, just going to their offices and meeting with them. And, and I, I really miss that. So I'm looking forward to a time when that will happen again. True. Aren't we all? Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, except uh, you know, let's move a little bit towards the media side, right? I think globally it has impacted the media industry a lot as well. And world over, there have been pay cuts, there have been job cuts, and it has also changed, you know, PR's association or relationship with the media industry. How has it been in your part of the world, and how has your agency adapted to, you know, keep up with the new changes? Well, I think the biggest change, you know, is that is just the news cycle. Um, we have an incredibly crowded news cycle. You know, for months, all the media would cover was COVID, which made it frustrating because there were other things happening. Um, and now in the U.S., um, there's like four or five main dri drivers of news coverage. There's COVID-19. Um, there's the fight for racial equity, and and uh, um, that's been a, a major story. Um, the passing of uh, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and when that seat will get filled is it right now is a huge driver of news and the election. So, um, you know, we're really trying to plan out if something doesn't fall into one of those buckets, it, it, we're trying to be realistic with clients saying it's going to be hard to get it covered and we have to time it really, really carefully. Um, so, um, for some clients, that will mean putting news out after the election, uh, but before the winter holidays. Um, so, so it's um, it's made it much harder. You know, that, that's the nature of the news cycle. There are always things that drive the news, and but it's it's kind of like the thing that I can remember is 9-11. Um, after 9-11, after you know, you'd be really tone deaf to pitch something that wasn't related to that for a, for a long time. Um, and, um, uh, I think the same is true now, except instead of it being like a one or two month, you know, media blackout, so to speak, it's a, you know, it's, it's, it's just been ongoing since the spring. So, so, um, it does, it does change the ability for things to get, to get covered. Um, um, so it's, so how are you planning new campaigns? Are you looking at launching new campaigns? Because I believe uh, Christmas and New Year is are also very important, right? Uh, important occasions for, for in your part of the world. Yes, they're certainly important and they're a big driver of PR activity. Less so in our case because we don't do a lot of consumer PR. We don't do product PR generally. Um, um, you know, the products that we, you know, are healthcare, you know, products or higher educate, but they're not products in terms of consumer you know, uh, items. Um, uh, so, and um, there, there are certain stories around the holidays that are better to pitch, obviously, um, stories about, um, uh, you know, humans' uh, challenges and heartwarming stories. And you know, to give you an example, last year we had a client that runs an adoption agency and they had families that were finalizing adoptions. And that wow. happened uh, right after Thanksgiving in that kind of holiday news cycle. So that was a story that got a huge amount of coverage. They had some interesting families um, and it got a huge amount of coverage. Uh, it wouldn't have gotten the same level of coverage at another time of the year. It would have gotten some coverage, but it wouldn't have gotten, you know, kind of every, you know, media outlet in our region covering the story. So, so you do try to time things to be yeah. to opportunistic you know the, the the turn of seasons you know is something you know we have some clients that are in the wellness space um so when when summer rolls around when fall rolls around there are things you can write about that are specific to those seasons um so we're always looking at the at the calendar to try to 
the opportunistic. Very much so. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm always touched by the work, you know, it's, it's, uh, um, you really see a lot of amazing things when you do this work and you learn about, um, you know, the people that you work with and their, you know, their situations, their triumphs. And so it's, uh, it always touches me personally. Um, so, you know, you have been in PRBI for some time now. Um, tell us how this membership has affected your company's development over the years. And what are the key benefits from this membership? Well, I, for you? I honestly believe joining PRBI was really one of the smartest things we've done as an organization. Um, it's given um, us the ability to really learn best practices um you know in the uh you know in the, in the trade and you know in, in the pr profession um it's given me the opportunity you know it's hard running a business um and um um learning as you go and and um uh having you know 30 or 40 other people who are in the exact same position that run small firms um and uh um deal with all the same set of issues that's a really you know, really good thing we can, and it particularly was helpful at the beginning of, um, at the pandemic, you know, we, we were thankfully busy because of the nature of our work, but there were some firms that were seeing, you know, huge fallout in, in business because of this. And, um, you know, again, those more consumer oriented, you know, um, firms that, that, um, you know, where campaigns were just being suspended. Um, so to be able to get together and talk with one another and, and share advice and, and uh, insights um, was a very, very positive thing. Um, and um, I've just always found it a great, I mean, I've made a lot of friends. We've only been in PRBI for, uh, I think, three years, but it's been um, just a really a wonderful experience. And we were looking for an association to join because, um you know, we are a small firm based in one market. And, you know, as you know, in PR, you can you can do your, apply your trade in any media market. I mean, you could have a client as we sometimes do in San Francisco, for instance, or in in, in another country, even in London, you know, it's, it's, it's doing, um, um, you know, it has an initiative and we can handle the PR, but, you know, you really want people on the ground who have their own local relationships um, and so we were looking to join an association to give us that kind of scale that we don't have uh, as an independent company. Um, and um, so PRBI has been good in that way, too, because, um, you know, if I have uh, a client, you know, with a need in uh, Asia or Europe or India, or, you know, wherever it may be, we now have partners that we can work with um, rather than just having to, to not have the chance to do that work and, you know, having a global firm that's based in the U.S. do it. You know, we have our own network. And so that's been a really beneficial thing. Agreed, agreed. I mean, uh, especially in the last six months, I think it's been very great to have like-minded people and, you know, let you know what is happening all around the world, one, and just boost your morale in another way and by sharing, just sharing their experiences and their stories. Yeah. yeah? So I'm going to call upon your experience over the last 30 years now. Um, can you share with us some of one of your most difficult cases in crisis management in uh, healthcare? 
irrespective of the last six months? Yeah. Um, you know, when I think of our really the most challenging things that we've worked on, yeah, one of them, one of the things that really kind of transformed our firm in a lot of ways was um, um, there was a, and we did not represent the company that was responsible for this. We represented the, the industry, um, but there was a bad, kind of a bad actor uh, that produced, um, that, that operated as a, what's called a compounding pharmacy. Here in the States, we have these um, pharmacies that uh, if you don't have a commercially um, manufactured drug to treat something, you can write a prescription and certain pharmacies have the capability to basically make the drug from scratch. They use bulk ingredients and you know, pharmacists are trained to do that. Um, and um, there's not a lot of, you know, it's a, it's a small subset. You know, most of the times you get a prescription from your doctor, you're going to go to a pharmacy. They're going to you know pull something off the shelf and, and dispense it to you. But there are some times where you need these compounded medications. Well, there was one company that had kind of exploited the, um, um, the definition of a compounding pharmacy, and they were making huge doses, uh, uh, huge lots of medication. Um, and um, they created a drug, a steroid type drug uh, that was uh, uh, sterile, it was an injectable drug, and it created um, uh, meningitis, a fungal meningitis in people who, who received the drug. And so there were, um, I think, um, I'm trying to remember the exact number of, uh, of cases of people um, uh, who, who, you know, who died uh, from this, I think it was around, it was around 700, if I'm remembering correctly. And, um, um, and so, you know, it was one organization, but th there's an industry of people who do this work and take it very seriously and in their profession and are honorable. And the, the industry was getting an enormous black eye from one, one bad actor. And so they came to us, um, this was in 2012, and they were all of a sudden, you know, in the center of this, you know, global story. And as you know, you know, when things um, get seeded in the media and in the news coverage, it's very hard to debunk things that might not be accurate um, or to prevent an entire industry getting painted with a very broad, broad brush. And so we were brought in um, to really try to um, educate and inform uh, the public about the value that compounders bring, um, you know, that, that what this one outfit was doing you know, really wasn't compounding. It was really drug manufacturing but under the guise of, of compounding. Um, so, um, you know, that um, we were a much smaller firm, actually, even though we're still a boutique kind of by design, we were a much smaller firm then, but we had this opportunity to try to help this profession. And we knew a lot about the profession because we had some clients who were in it. Um, so that was you know that took a long time that was like a multi-year engagement to try to rebuild the reputation of the profession congress even uh here in the u.s passed a law to further regulate compounding and we were very involved in that trying to make sure that the law would preserve the profession because at one point in time the situation was so bad here um that uh thought was the industry might get regulated out of existence um, so, um, 
you know, it, it, it uh, things like that really changed me, you know, and, and, um, um, it was a, it was a really, um, and, and I mean, we, we basically, the, we represented the association. They outsourced their media relations function to us. So, you know, we were getting inbound calls from writers and, you know, the New York Times and, you know, major like global news organizations. Um, so as much as it was challenging, it was also kind of exciting for us to handle that and to be, try to be the face of the profession um, you know, or, the, or, or at least an adequate spokesman for the profession. Uh I'm sure it must have, you know, provided a huge impetus for growth at that point of time. Crisis can also turn into an opportunity, especially in the PR profession. So now that we're almost at the end of the year, what are your business plans for your company, for your agency, for the remainder of the year? Yeah. Um, I, by the way, I misspoke. It was uh, about 70 deaths and 700 uh, cases, uh, meningitis cases. You know, our, our plans are... Um, um, you know, really, we're very focused on growth at this point in time because it's we feel it's the right time for us to try to grow as an organization. We like being in the boutique space, and we don't ever in, envision ourselves being a, a large or region, you know, mid-size or a large firm. But you know, within the boutique realm, we can we can continue to grow, and um, both in the the size of the agency, the number of employees we have. Um, but also in terms of the scale of the things that we're working on um, and uh, the issues that were the, the, the breadth of the issues that we're working on. So I really view the next um, five to 10 years as you know, we have very exciting plans to try to try to grow the firm, uh, you know, grow, grow our, our um, reputation nationally and, and um, you know, work on really exciting things. Yeah. So how do you plan to grow your um, uh, do you have you decided now that you've decided that you want to remain boutique? How does a boutique firm grow? Well, I think that, you know, as you know, in PRBI, there are some boutiques that are um, that are very, very small, you know, solo practitioners or some that have you know, 20, 20 employees. I don't think there's a there's ever been a firm you know, kind of upper limit established on when something goes from a boutique to maybe a midsize agency. But I think we have room to uh, um, to grow by, you know, I hope over the next decade, you know, uh, by two or three times, uh, you know, where we are now. Um, and um, and of course, growth creates, you know, its own issues, and and um, um, you know, you really have to grow in the right way, um, and we have to scale. We have to be smarter. I think personally, I mean, I'm I'm kind of a uh, I wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't call myself an early adapter of technology. You know, it's, uh, um, I always feel like there's new applications and products and, and, um, that, I, that I'm slow to really adopt for our firm here. Um, so, um, I think part of it's being kind of smarter about how we work too. Um, but, um, but no, I, I, I see us, I'd like to, you know, uh, I'd like to add, in the next two to three years, you know, multiple positions here. Wow, um, that 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 sounds exciting. <laughs> well, well yeah. that's that's the plan anyway. We'll see how you can you can ask me in a few years whether I was successful. <laughs> or not. And I mean, it's always nice to first plan, like you said. Um, it's all about the details of the planning, right? Uh, mm -hmm. So that goes to your business plan too. 
That's right. We can never predict the outcome. We can only talk about the effort. That's right. And, and you know, um, as the old saying goes, man plans and God laughs, right? And no matter how well you plan for something, you know, you can be dealing with a global pandemic or something else and that you never planned on or expected. And it's a lesson I try to teach, you know, my kids all the time is that you have to be, uh, you know, you have to be flexible because things change around you um, and you have to be ready to change with them. True, true. So has your definition of PR, you know, success in a PR campaign changed? Um, you know, certainly the measurement, the metrics have changed, even from when I started doing this a long time ago. I mean, there's so much more data available, you know, analytics and social media with its tracking of impressions and shares. And, you know, so, um, you know, the, I think it's always important to keep clients focused on what PR is. You know, it's different than advertising. You know, it's not just making the cash register ring. You know, it's it's about creating a, uh, a reputation and growing that reputation um, and building awareness, you know, we do, we work with a lot of uh, cause oriented um, um, campaigns. Um, so people who are trying to change public policy or, you know, kind of big picture um, issues like that. And, you know, in that case, you know, it's very hard to measure and it may take many times. You know, we've had some clients that have been trying to get legislation passed um, uh, and it's taken them, you know, to, for instance, um, certain healthcare practitioners want the ability to practice to, to the level they were trained. There's a lot of, creates a lot of um, uh, controversy and infighting um, in the profession. And so some of those clients of ours, it's taken them like four or five times every year getting a bill filed to get it, finally get it passed. So you don't have change overnight. Um, it comes over a long period of time. And that's yeah. the thing that, that, you know, if you're thinking, we always tell clients, if you're thinking this is going to have an immediate, you know, you're going to get a couple of news stories and have an immediate impact, um, you know, it's, it, you shouldn't think that way. You really have to think, you know, long-term. If you're thinking about PR, you really should be thinking about six to 12 months at least of work before, you know, you, you, you know, end the campaign. And, um, so that's a you know big discussion that we have a lot with clients who want to just do kind of one announcement and be done. And it's like you know one announcement will be an announcement and you'll get news coverage. But if you're really looking to to change the way the public looks at an issue, well that that's a long term uh, engagement. Long term engagement on that true. Um, so is there you know so you look at every campaign and decide what the measure of success would be for that particular campaign or is there a standard method that you do recommend that somebody starts from where they look at analyzing ROI or you know the the success as such yeah I think um you know this success in a, in a number of different ways there's uh, measuring um uh you know media placements, for instance, people have an idea of where they want to be in the news media and, and generating that is, is one measure of success. But, you know, trying to create, it, it's it's what comes after the news coverage that's really important. You know, is there this sense of, you know, greater interest? You know, is fundraising increasing? Are people, you know, for nonprofit or an NGO, you know, are, are people donating uh, more, um, you know, for a, you um, um, in the, in the case of, um, you know, an organization that's trying to, uh, um, 
you know, get, uh, vol see volume grow, you know, what is the trend line on the volume, you know, uh, those are, so, the, so there's kind of immediate measurements of the PR work, then there's really the longer term metrics. So how many people go on your website? You know, it's there. And what's a reasonable expectation? You know, we always do these plans for clients. And we, we say, what's the metric for people coming to your web? How many more visits do you want? You know, sometimes people say, well, 20% or 25%. And we have to say, you know, you know, two and a half percent is a, is a significant increase. You know, it's, you have to have reasonable expectations, you know, going into it. Um, I mean, a lot of clients just love adding a lot of zeros behind it. I wish they would do that <laughs> check as well. Very much so. Um, um, you know, it's... Uh, um, you know, as you know, in this business, we try to under promise and over deliver and, and, you know, managing expectations is, is a big part of that. And, uh, um, you know, really getting people to have a realistic sense of, of what's doable because, you know, at the end of the day, when you look at brands, right, there's, there's only going to be so many Googles and Apples and, and, um, Microsofts and, you know, and, um, for a lot of other companies, it's just, it's going to be, you know, slow, steady, incremental progress. And that's a good thing over time, but it might be multi-generational even. Um, so. Yeah, we don't know about that. So <laughs> yeah. top advice, let's say your three top, you know, um, advice for brands that are struggling with crisis management today in the healthcare space. Well, I think you have to be, um, uh, first of all, adapt to the times. Um you know, uh, here in the U.S., there's been, you know, as, as I said earlier, it's been a lot of dialogue around racial equity and the growth of the Black Lives Matter movement. And there were some brands here in the U.S. that were just really tone deaf to um, that should have changed a lot uh, uh, sooner than than they did. Um, but there were some brands that had really, uh, you know, frankly, racist iconography, you know, and and um, and one of those just announced in the Wall Street Journal earlier this week, uh, big manufacturer of rice, Uncle Ben's Rice, you know, which was really a very stereotypical name and and again a, a logo that really was not appropriate, and you know they they finally are rebranding. Re um, but you know you have to be really sensitive to the times and listen to listen to people. Um, and, um, and, and make, um, and be flexible and change. And so I think that, um, you know, just because you have a plan doesn't mean you should, you should just follow it blindly. Um, you have to be really attentive to, to what you're hearing at the same time as what you're doing. Um, and I think, uh, also, um, you know, it's, um, it's just really important to be sensitive in communications, particularly with our healthcare clients. And a lot of times, in healthcare, when you're dealing with healthcare policy, the expected outcome of what you're doing is to um, save money, to lower co healthcare costs, and to improve outcomes so people are healthier. But if you're communicating that, um, it's a very subtle thing, but if you're communicating that, don't you want to first say that your goal is to improve outcomes? And by the way, we're going to save money. You know, it's, you know, it's, you know, you're talking about healthcare and human life. You need to value the right things and how you message that. So just being sensitive about about how you how you communicate, I think, is really important. Um, so I mean, that's one of the most crucial things, and it should come naturally to a lot of brands in the healthcare space. But surprisingly, it doesn't. <laughs> right. um, 
You know, so um, you know, we are running out of time. Uh, last question of the day: What do you love most and or hate most about your job? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Um, you know, I, I love the fact that my job has always required me to really kind of um, um, think on my toes. You know, to to be to just it, it, my mind is always engaged in what I'm doing. Right. Not everyone, you know, I think has that. There's a lot of different kinds of jobs there that don't, you don't have that kind of, you know, constant engagement and, and, um, um, and a lot of jobs are more rote and routine. So I li really like that aspect of my job. Um, and I think the things that I don't like are um, one kind of all the administrative issues you have to deal with when you, when you operate a business, you know, there's just a lot of, you know, um, back end silliness that you have to, you know, kind of manage through. Um, and I think too, you know, um, it's always troubling when clients might, when they're, when the expectations might not be realistic, um, or um, when, you know, uh, sometimes as you know in this business, again, it's not advertising, right? So in advertising, you create, you have creative, and then you buy the purchase, the space, or the airtime, or whatever, whatever the medium is. And now the ad might not be effective, and that might be a disappointment. But you're at least, you're at least delivering what you set out to do. But in the case of PR, you might pitch a story in a certain way and it might go in a completely different direction, you know, even though you try to manage against that. Um, you might have a really good opinion to share and you just don't have the level of engagement in terms of a publication that you know, immediately wants to publish that. And so, so there's a lot of unknowns. And I think this challenge that PR practitioners have is managing the unknowns. Okay, um, I'm sure a lot of PR practitioners will resonate with, you know, your likes and dislikes about the profession. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so thank you for all the insights. Really appreciate you taking out the time today to speak to all of us and helping us a lot more about crisis management in the healthcare space and get letting us, you know, giving us a chance to know your firm better. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me on. I, I love talking about what I do and I appreciate having had this chance uh, to, to do that. So thank you. Awesome. Thank you. So that was our PRBI member, David Ball, president of Ball Consulting Group, LLC from Boston, speaking to us about crisis management in healthcare PR. We do hope the session helped you understand and know more about how to handle a crisis in the segment. Thank you again for joining us today for the session. We will see you again at our next live session with another interesting conversation on PR from an accomplished professional from the global PRBI network. So stay tuned.